1: Figure Lending, LLC, DBA Figure. Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org.
2: Hi, this is Andy Bolton from Tokyo Blade. You are listening to Talking Metal, the greatest podcast in America.
1: Black Label presents Heavy Montreal, July 28th and 29th. Outdoors at Parc Jean Drapeau. Featuring Avenged Sevenfold.
3: Rob Zombie and Marilyn Manson a weekend of hard rock and metal with Gojira Emperor Under Earth, Hollywood Undead and many more Festival passes are on sale now see the full lineup at heavymontreal.com produced by Avenco
4: Hi, I'm Mark Striegel host and producer of this show since 2005 on this episode we're going to talk some rock some metal and anything else we feel like we're also going to jam some tunes have a drink and share some honest opinions thanks for listening to the talking metal podcast let's get things started here's an old classic that sounds just as good today as it did when we were kids to another edition of the podcast. My name is Mark, and uh, what a great episode we have for you today. Michael Alago, the guy who signed Metallica to Electra Records, is joining us here to talk about, of course, Metallica, and about a lot of other things, including his great new documentary movie, which I've now seen twice. It's on Netflix. He's going to tell us all about it. You have to go watch this documentary if you're a fan of rock music. It is such a great story. And Michael, he's been on quite a journey. And and he's going to tell us a little bit about that journey today. And you can also hear about it and watch it in his great documentary. Again, it's on Netflix. It is called Who the Fuck Is That Guy? The Fabulous Journey of Michael Alago. Check it out. Really great watch for fans of, of rock music. And even if you're not a fan of rock music, I think this is just a a cool story to, to watch. And we're going to, we're going to talk to Michael in just a little bit. He'll be our first interview. And our second interview is Andy Bolton. And uh, coming into this episode, we heard a little bit of Andy Bolton with his band, Tokyo Blade, legendary band, And yeah, that song that we heard coming into the episode, Night of the Blade, again by Tokyo Blade. And what an honor to talk with Andy Bolton, really. I mean, this guy's not a superstar, you know, he never he's not really over the top rock star, but his beginnings go back to that new wave of British heavy metal, to the early days of Iron Maiden, to the early days of Metallica. This guy has some stories. Of course, yeah, I know Metallica wasn't part of the new wave of British heavy metal, but they were part of Tokyo Blade's history, as as was Tokyo Blade a part of their history. We're going to hear some great stories from Andy, again, his band Tokyo Blade. And we're also going to hear... They have a new record out. Like, who Who knew Unbroken is coming out. It's uh, probably coming out in just a few days after I post this podcast in July of 2018. July 20th, I believe. And there's nothing on Blabbermouth about this new record, at least up to the day I'm recording this, which is uh, July 12th. I don't see anything. I, I feel like it's kind of a hidden secret that, that Tokyo Blade has a brand new record out. And we will check out some of the music I believe it's a Talking Metal exclusive here. We're going to check out some brand new Tokyo Blade music and be sure to support Tokyo Blade by, of course, picking up all their old catalog, but also giving this new record a chance. Check it out and uh, track it down. Unbroken by Tokyo Blade is on the way, guys. Finally, wrapping up the uh, episode, we're going to hear from uh, a young guy named Harrison, and his band is Tempt. So stay tuned for that, too. It's a long, epic episode, three great interviews. And I tell you what, I want to mention all the Patreon supporters and do all the plugs and and that type of stuff. But let's do that after the Michael Alago interview. Since it's such a long, epic episode here, let's get right into the interview. But before we do that, let's listen to a song by the band Ether. This is a band that Michael Alago is currently working with. And again, wow, what, man, Metallica, Flotsam and Jetsam, Swans, Cindy Lauper. I mean, the the amount of guys that uh, artists that Michael has worked with is staggering. But um, anyways, here is here is who he's uh, one of the bands he's currently working with. This is Ether. And this song, I love this song, is called We Are the Empty Vessel Where Life Used to Grow. And it's by the band Ether off of their, uh, their release, which is called There Is Nothing Left For Me Here. So we'll hear this song and then we'll hear from Michael Olago. Hey, it's mark striegel with the talking metal podcast and i think you guys have heard me talk about this great documentary that's on netflix it's called who the fuck is that guy the fabulous journey of michael olago and i have to say it's a true honor because right now on the line we have the one and only michael olago michael how are you
3: I'm pretty good and thank God there's only one of me (laughs) and I have to say this before I get into trouble Um, the documentary is fabulous and it was directed by Drew Stone and produced by Michael Alex okay I got that out of the way right
4: (laughs) and it's a it's a great watch and it it really is your your life story and it it is just uh, I mean like the title says a fabulous journey it's inspiring and informative so much yeah it really is and I, you know, we're, we're, we're metal heads here on this, on this podcast. So I definitely want to talk to you about, you know, all, all the, all the heavy metal stuff you, you've been involved with throughout the years, but there's a lot more to you than just metal. I mean, it's, and it comes across in this documentary. Uh, I mean, it sounds like you really, you got your start, you know, going to the clubs in New York city and, and the one band that, it sounds like you really took a a liking to and and got involved with their fan club and stuff back in the day was the dead boys. And when, when do you remember seeing the dead boys for the first time?
3: Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, just first of all, uh, you know, I'm glad that the documentary is out there. It's being very well received. But you know, also in whatever it is, 88 minutes, you can't tell everything about your life,
5: right? Because right. Because
3: it's just you know the the movie has to have some kind of an arc. Um, and having said that, I'm actually working on a memoir right now. But yes, I was a young person going out in the l- mid late 70s when I was 15, 16 years old and I picked up the Village Voice because I was told that was the newspaper that had everything in it. And it did. It had music, it had art, it had theater, and it had porn. All four of my favorite things. (laughs) So um, when I saw the ads for CBGB and Max's Kansas City, and I saw names like The Dead Boys and knew that uh, they they had had a record coming out, I heard it, and I thought, well, this is the greatest thing I ever heard. I loved that they were, you know, this rock and roll, punk rock-ish type of band. I went to see them live, and they were kind of like the bastard child of the Stooges. They, the energy was always really high. Steve Bader's was a front man that kicked ass every time he was on stage. You never knew what he was going to do. Was he going to hang himself by the, the, the mic uh, cord from the ceiling? or was he going to beat the shit out of himself with the mic, or, or what? It was always something with them. And, you know, it's a funny thing. Like, I just saw them again. Obviously, minus Stiv, because he passed in, I don't know if it was maybe around 94, perhaps. And, uh, you know, for young people who don't remember them from back in the day, uh, they have a new front guy, and he's fantastic. And those songs just still hold up. It's amazing, and it's just, you know, a testament to good songwriting.
4: And Cheetah Chrome is still in the fold with them?
3: It's Cheetah Chrome uh, and their drummer, Johnny Blitz. And the other guys are new, and you know it's killer. It's fantastic, and it's so great that you know musicians like that who have been doing this for oh my gosh, uh, oh boy, forty-one years uh, can still be out there and make some kind of a living because the music has always been that good.
5: Yeah, absolutely. To answer your
3: question, yes, Cheetahs in the band, Johnny's in the band, some new folks are in the band, and it's killing.
4: Now, you, you mentioned Max's Kansas City and, and uh-huh. CBGB's and some uh-huh. of the other clubs we hear about in the documentary are Lemore's, of course, Lemore and, and, and the, the yep. Cat Club. What, yep. what were some of the differences? Like, what was the difference between the Cat Club and, say, CBGB's to people who might not know? Different scenes at different clubs, right?
3: Yeah. Um, well, very specifically, let's say, Don Hill's Cat Club. We, all of us uh, went there specifically on a Wednesday night because it was like hard rock, glam, metal. Uh, A place like Lamar in Brooklyn was mostly, you know, hard rock and metal. That's what you went there for. You went there for Biohazard. You went there for Armored Saint. You went there for Wendy O. Williams. You went there to see see Metallica, Metal Church, uh, and the likes. You know other places like the Ritz. The Ritz was more of a concert venue, so they had to have a wide variety of entertainment there. Just you know, to keep the doors open. Right. Uh, CB's was you know punk rock. It was on the Bowery, where the Bowery was funky and dirty, but everybody went to CBGB. They had an incredible sound system, and you could see and hear everybody there from. Patty Smith, Blondie, Talking Heads, The Ramones, Suicide, and the likes. You know, it was a funky, dirty place. You know, Hilly Crystal had this dog, this huge, skinny, like, Afghan dog who used to just walk up and down Seabees and would just shit wherever it wanted to. And it, it, it was a very funky atmosphere, to say the least.
4: Right on, right on. Now, one thing that you get into in the film a little Please. bit um is the the New York City gay scene back mm-hmm. at, at the time and you mentioned some of the clubs and some of the lifestyle that was involved with with uh with you in that scene back then. How much did the rock scene and the gay scene kind of overlap if if at all?
3: Mm-mm-mm. Um Well, you know, I I, I did go to a bunch of gay clubs back in the day, but, you know, my focus was always rock and roll, and I never thought of, you know, gay versus straight. I just went to these places because it was my life, and, you know, as a young person, just to backtrack for a second, you know, I knew that I loved music coming out of the womb. And as a teenager, I knew I wanted to be in music, but I didn't know exactly, like, what it was that I wanted to do. But I never had a plan B. The plan A was get in the music business. So, you know, back then I had a few friends who were gay who would uh, come to the clubs with me and stuff. And I don't know, there was just... Um, Uh, that wasn't just like a thing. Everybody just went to the clubs because they loved rock and roll. I don't know how much overlap there really was. Um... So I don't know if I really
4: answered your question Yeah, or not. well, that's fine. That's fine. One thing okay. I, I love about the film, too, which is it's just really clever and well done. Uh, the, the animation stuff that you guys uh, add in there is, <laughs> is so good and fun to watch and, and really original. I, I love that. Any insight to, to who did the animation and how that was oh, all created? Of course,
3: of course. At one point, Drew Stone, our director, wanted animation in the film. And I just thought, mm, uh, or uh, I don't know. But he uh, found this animator on uh, Craigslist, I believe. His name is wow. Tim Thompson. And they started talking. And uh, he, Drew showed Tim a couple of little uh, slices of the film. And he came back to us with animation. And we corrected one or two things. And the second time he came back to us with, more animation he was spot on it was very funny and we loved it so yeah, it great. just you know drew was really smart and clever to think about that and in all the places i think we have animation in about 5 places it all works beautifully and people get such a laugh out of some of the animation or maybe even all of it all of the animation that it just helps move the story along as well
4: Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Now, one one of the uh, I mean, one of the big parts of the film or, or a big presence in the film is is Metallica and the Metallica guys commenting oh, and talking about yeah. you and you at, at some point become an A&R guy. And I wanted to talk to you mm-hmm. uh, specifically about. Bringing Metallica to Electra and how that all went down. Do you was it a, was it a tough negotiation? I know they were on Megaforce at the time. How did you get them off of Megaforce and onto Electra? How, how did the whole signing of Metallica come about? I know it's probably a long story, but you know the well, the, you know it's the, very the short funny version.
3: Because I guess I have told this story for about thirty-four years now, and I try to be as succinct as possible. Um, Okay, here we go. At some point in around 1983, when I start doing A&R at Elektra, I meet Johnny Z. You know, uh, we were introduced to each other. I don't know if it was by telephone or by another colleague of of ours. And uh, he let me know about his uh, independent label called Megaforce. Uh, He also said to me, Michael, we have this band that are going to be huge. And I don't know if we're going to be able to take them to the top because of funding. And I said, what is their name? And he said, Raven. I said, okay, so why don't we, why don't I give you like five grand and I will um, do a demo with them and then let's see what happens from there. But the problem, or not the problem, I don't know what the right word is, but what happened in the course of... Me doing the Raven demos for Electra and John uh, supplying me with, like, all of his uh, current Megaforce records was that I heard Kill Em All, which, right. you know, like, all of us know, once we heard Kill Em All, we lost our minds. It was a record that took us to a place that I think no other metal record has taken us to. And I thought, wow, I have to have these people in my life. Now, uh, I wound up seeing them at the Stone in San Francisco at some point, And then um, I had given Lars my card when at, at that time. Uh, I didn't follow it up because I was just starting my job and I was listening to demos and meeting with bands and managers and lawyers and at some point in the new year, 84 uh, Lars called me up and said uh You know, I don't know if you're still interested in us, but we're playing Roseland as part of a triple-act bill with Raven and Anthrax. And I was like, right on. So I uh, let them know that I was going to be there. I brought our chairman, Bob Krasnow, to Roseland, along with uh, our head of radio promotion, Mike Bone. And that night, it was summer. It was, I believe, August. It was sweaty and hot in New York City, never mind, in a sold-out venue where the electricity in the air was so high because Metallica were on the tip of everyone's tongue. They were the people everybody was talking about uh, as part of like the underground music scene. You
4: and know, Ride the Lightning was, was out at this point?
3: No, it was not.
4: It was not, okay.
3: No, it was not. Um, they were working on it, but it was not out yet. You know, they were the the band that everybody really was talking about. You know, there were flyers that people always made up, come to my gig. There were uh, cassettes that everybody was trading. Well, they were part of this triple-act bill. They were in the middle of the whole uh, evening. They were the second band to go on. And, you know, they destroyed the place. Uh, You know, that that, that term, if they ripped the roof off the place, well, if they could have, they did it. And uh, it was the most exciting thing ever. So I went backstage, and I said, guys, you know what? We, we, You've got to be on Electra. I mean, that's just there's no ifs, ands, or buts. So when John found out that I really and truly uh, wanted them in my life, he was furious. Uh, he wanted wow. to sue Electra, He wanted to sue me. He wanted to sue Time Warner. But, you know, money talks. And uh, I think he knew that he also couldn't take them to that next big level. So uh, what wound up happening is his business affairs people and our business affairs people started talking. And, you know, a deal was worked out that was uh, realistic and that everybody said yes to. And I don't know, I guess the rest is history.
4: Right. So so they end up releasing then or Ride the Lightning on Megaforce, but the, but then pretty much almost immediately Electra re-releases it. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. Yes, it is. Okay. So what was it out on Megaforce just like for two months, two or three months or something? Um, Does that sound very,
3: right? Yeah, well, let me just think. Oh, this, blah, blah, blah. A very, very short period of time, maybe right. a month or two. That's correct. And then we put it out on Electra, and it immediately blew up, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and we all know what you know. We all know the story.
4: And then they they start production. I would guess at some point after that on what becomes one of the greatest metal albums of all time, Master of Puppets. How? What do you remember about that? Were they bringing you ideas and playing you yeah. ideas from That's that a good album? Question. They
3: they they they, um, they were managed by q Prime. They were fiercely independent about wanting really no help with the making of their records. So our agreement, you know, basically, you know, uh, I spoke to Lars a lot back in the day. It was mostly him. uh, And that he would uh, send me what was happening in the studio. So then, remember, it's still, it's the 80s, and he was sending me cassettes of parts of songs and everything just... Really sounded terrific. And the songwriting was even leaps and bounds more mature than the first two albums. And because they were people who always had a very clear focus about what they wanted, you know, myself as an A&R person and Elektra as a label, just let them do their thing in the studio. And, you know, it was really gratifying to know that uh, they knew what they wanted, they knew how to get it down on tape, and they delivered the goods.
4: Absolutely. And, again... Remaining one of the the greatest, if not the absolute best heavy metal record of all time. We're talking about master, stunning recording, absolutely, man. And and was there? You know, there was a big thing at that time. They made Mm -hmm. a big stance against MTV by refusing to do a music video for that record. They, They, you know, and they were three albums into their career. At, at, at a time when MTV was just so influential and popular and yet Metallica still had not released a music video they didn't do it until the next record um did did you guys at the label put any pressure on them to try to get them to do a music video for a song off of master of puppets or was it mm-hmm. or was right. there no pressure from you guys for that
3: yes. well I'm sure <laughs> they was I'm sure and I don't specifically remember I'm sure there was talk because of the success of MTV at that point in time, because of the wild success of Metallica on their own, uh, you know, I think it was that they just didn't want to want to make a video. I think they didn't need to make a video. The uh, progress that they were making on their own by touring live, by you know, every, they they were the most talked-about band in the 80s then. So, you know, they were just doing their thing. Electra was just doing their thing. And we just kept moving forward. So after a while, I think that issue just got dropped because it wasn't necessary.
4: Right on. Right on. Cool. And another person in the film, again, the the documentary is <laughs> Who the Fuck is That Guy? The Fabulous Journey yeah. of Michael Alago. It's a awesome watch guys you need to go to netflix and watch this but another guy who's uh, prominent in the film is is kurt from from metal church and i just uh, wanted to go into a little bit of your history with him because i found that part of the uh, the documentary touching too and and it, it you know he was with his sexuality it seems like a little more i don't know if i'd say in the closet but you know wasn't sharing it.
3: He was more, he was more reserved than I ever was in my life. You know, for me, I was always openly gay. I have no idea how that happened. I never had any fear about it. I was just like, here I am, you either like me or you don't. And right I on. feel like that about so many people, you know. It's like part of the human condition. You either like somebody or you don't. The sexuality is, unless you're sleeping with somebody, that's secondary to who you are and how you present yourself into the world. Um, at some point, around 1985, 86, I heard a little record called Metal Church out of Seattle. Uh, this band had a, um, a young manager. His name was Willie. I forget Willie's name right now, but he sent me this little independent record. Uh, I lost my mind. I thought it was killer. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to sign this band next. So I wound up signing Metal Church. We put out that independent record. And then soon after that, we went into the recording studio with a British producer named Mark Dodson. And we made a stellar record called The Dark.
4: Right. Uh, okay. Their there's second record. It, yep. Pardon? The second record, The Dark, and then the first one was uh, self-titled, if I
3: remember correctly. That is correct. Right? Yeah. The first self-titled, the second one was called The Dark. And, um... Yeah. So, uh, during the making of that record, uh, Kurt Vanderhoof and I just became very, very close. I think he's a really smart musician. He's a great human being. And, you know, we just got along famously. And, you know, I just spoke to him and just wished him a happy birthday two days ago. Oh, cool. And, uh... You know, we just wound up being friends because we liked each other and we liked the mu- same kind of music. And uh, that's just a nice thing. That's all I could say.
4: Right on. Right on. And you get into what you're up to nowadays towards the end of the film, there's some of the photography stuff you're doing. What else keeps you busy these days?
3: Uh, Well, right now I'm working on a series of black and white portraits that I've been shooting backstage at concerts. Some of the pictures are of musicians. Uh, A lot of the pictures are of people with extreme tattoos, which I love. Because I love extreme tattoos because of the stories that they tell. I always want to know, like, why did you get that? And I don't say that like pointing a finger or anything. I'm just curious. And uh, when people have these kind of stellar, wild tattoos, either on half their face or on half their throat, I just want to know why what the story is, so that maybe even in the, my black and white photography book that I want to put out, I could tell part of their story as well so i 'm working on this black and white photography book. I got a, a book deal, so i 'm writing a memoir right now, and yeah, a sounds lot of great the stories that you know just don 't make it into a movie because, like I said, you can't tell everything because then there's no arc in the film. There's no real beginning, middle, and end. So, you know, there's lots of stories. Like I remember when Bill Graham came to pick me up to tell me he was managing a band and that they had been labelists for a while, and he wouldn't even tell me who the band was until we got to Jacksonville, Florida, and the band was Leonard Skynyrd, and boy do I have a story about that that's fantastic, but it'll be saved for the book. At some point in 2010, Cindy Lauper calls and says, you know, Michael, in that Queen's uh, accent that she has that's so fabulous and distinct, you know, Michael, I want to make a blues record. Have you ever made a blues record? record? I said, no, sin. I never made a blues record. Have you? She said no. I said, good. So we're on even playing ground. So, you know, She wanted to make a blues record. I I was the uh, A&R executive, and so I went to her house day after day, and we sat in her kitchen, and we started going through boxes of blues recordings. And we were looking for songs that were coming from or could come from a woman's point of view. I thought it was very exciting because she was always up for an adventure. And, um, you know, there's just a great backstory there about going to Memphis to record the record in, in a very strange way. Part of the civil rights movement is part of just the story of us going down there for a couple reasons, and that story I'm saving for the book. I mean, so there are so many things like that that are cool, uh, if you will, backstage-type stories that um, I'm going to tell in the book, and I think people will get a kick out of all of it because I have great stories about, like I said, Bill Graham, about Cindy, about Nina Simone – that are just going to be wonderful for people to hear. Um, But it's also a book about that we delve in heavy uh, in regards to addiction and recovery and HIV and uh, survival, because here we are talking.
4: Absolutely. Well, I cannot wait to, to read that. When, when are you thinking this might be completed well, and released? I'm, I'm
3: hoping that we try to get it out at the end of uh, the second quarter of next year. Okay. In 2019. It's with a little company called Backbeat Books. I have a co-writer that uh, every Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday for at least three hours each day, I kind of like vomit my life story out to Laura in, out, on FaceTime because I just couldn't do it on my own. I needed that person to give me that push. She's given me that push. And it's all working out really cool.
4: That's awesome. I cannot wait for that. Yeah. I hope you come back and, and talk to us when that when that comes out for, for oh, another I'd interview. You're staying healthy.
3: Oh, gosh, yes. I'm I really, as they say, healthy as a horse. You know, I think that all helps. that I haven't had a drink or a drug in almost 11 years. Um, you know, Congratulations. When, when talks about, oh, yeah, thank you so much. Um, you know, my viral load is zero. It's undetectable in my body, which is Good. such a blessing. You know, so really I'm quite fit these days. And, you know, that's a blessing when so many of my... Uh, Friends in the 80s were just dying, and uh, it was a plague that was happening. And I got sick in the the 90s when there was still no medication. But you know what? I don't know. God, the universe, uh, good luck. I have no idea what it was that I lived through it all.
5: And here we are.
3: And I had so much, and I've had so much work to do that i think that's why you know i didn't die <laughs>
4: <laughs> well thank goodness for that and
3: yes 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 and-
4: and I wanted to just kind of random. I, I think it was on Twitter or maybe it was an email. I, I uh, sent something out about Bill coin and uh, you <laughs> you you responded to the tweet. Ooh, I think it was. What, what, I certainly did. What was your history with Bill? Uh, we we were fortunate enough to interview him uh, a couple years before he he passed away, and oh, wait, and what a kidding. yeah, what a legendary guy and oh, such a history man with Great Kiss history. and Billy Idol. What, how did you Mary. know Bill?
3: Very funny guy. Um, you know, uh, Bill was a manager. Uh, he also managed people that we. I've never heard of. Uh, so when I was booking the Ritz from 1980 to 83, uh, he solicited some, you know, New York bands to me. And uh, knowing that also he was a gay man in the music industry, right. we just got along like a house on fire. And he, I think, took a liking to me. And I definitely took a liking to Bill. And I just, what I loved more, bit, most about him was what a brain he had. I mean, I mean, really a brilliant guy, a brilliant, uh, uh, spotter of talent. And then add all that marketing genius on top of it. I mean, you know, kiss and Billy Idol, Billy Squire, uh, you know, he knew the right people to put out there and he did it so big and so beautifully. um, Yeah, so um, we stayed friends for a long period of time, and then Bill wound up moving, I believe, down to Florida. Correct, yes. We lost contact, and maybe it was, uh, mm, let me see, I'm terrible with time sometimes, Uh, of a year, a few years before he passed, we just spoke. Just about life, because we hadn't spoken in a very long time. But, you know, he was a very, very special man, a very brilliant man. And, um, yeah.
4: Yeah, great guy, and, and we definitely miss him. And- oh, gosh,
3: absolutely. Absolutely.
4: And, Michael, it's been so great hearing your stories. And, again, we want to encourage everyone to check out the documentary. It is a great watch, guys. Who the fuck is that guy? The Fabulous Journey of Michael Alago. It's a just a great watch. It's on Netflix. A uh, book's on the way. We can't wait for that. And, uh, yeah, what an honor minute. talking to you.
3: Are we almost done here?
4: No, no, no. We're not. We're not done. We're just. We're just getting started. We're just getting started. But I, I definitely have some more questions for you. Actually, we're not just getting started, but I do have some more questions for you. What What else are you up to right now in 2018?
3: Part of what I'm doing right now is I look after a band from South Florida, and you know this is like a shameless plug. No, go for it. They're you know up and coming. I want to plug them, and they're called Ether. And uh, they're very heavy. They have a little independent record out called There Is Nothing Left For Me Here. And, you know, if you like Swans and you like Crowbar and you like uh, I Hate God. And if you like Phil Anselmo's, one of his many bands, but one specific band called Scour, you will love Ether.
4: Wow. Very cool. And, and so, so you, you're, you're working with them, like managing yeah. them or A-top. shopping them? I
3: kind of, yes, I'm kind of managing them, and I've solicited them to many record companies, and we're about to close a deal with an independent label that's distributed through a major, and we're very, very excited about that. They really are fantastic. I'll get you a copy of their record. It's called There Is Nothing Left For Me Here. Real smart people extraordinary playing uh, so,
4: yeah, awesome, cool, and you know you mentioned flotsam and jetsam, and uh-huh. another another big guy in the film, a uh, important part of the film is is Jason, obviously, and
3: Jason Newstead, absolutely
4: it, who really I believe in the film really thanks you for his career because he, he he seems to believe that if it weren't for you he he may have never made it as a musician. Can you talk a little bit about Absolutely about sure. about
3: I'm glad we're talking about this because yeah. uh, I adore Jason. We speak all the time still. Well, what wound up happening is I uh, heard Doomsday for the Deceiver. That was on Metal Blade. Right. I think it might have been a one-off that they did with Metal Blade. I loved it. Uh, he solicited me um, because he liked the label Electra. I loved the music and I just thought you know what I want these young people in my life so I wound up signing them but what wound up happening during all of that we're talking about 1986 now and we're going back to Metallica Metallica on the road it's September there I believe in Sweden and as we all yes. know what happened uh, on the road was that uh,
5: uh,
3: the, ba- the uh, tour bus slipped on black ice, uh, the bus turned over, and it killed our brother, Cliff Burton. Yes. Uh, you know, that was, I mean, that was unbelievable. You know, it was a shock to family, friends, the the, the metal world. Uh, you know, everyone was in a daze. You have to remember, everybody was young and in their 20s. And for something that devastating to happen... It blows your mind, you know? I mean, the pain and the hurt. And, you know, at one point, the three the remaining guys didn't know if they wanted to go on or not. I mean, it was serious, as we all know. Clipped yeah. was a very loving, unique individual. Uh, you know, and dare I say, he might have been the best musician in the band at that time. Right. Everybody loved Cliff, who came in touch with him. He was really a special guy. He was a lovely person and an extraordinary player. So back to Flotsam. A um, couple months go by. I get a phone call from Lars, and he says, Michael, we are going to move forward. Great wonderful uh he says who do you got for us so i submitted two people uh phil cavano from monster magnet who was then in Spear, and jason newstead it was kind of killing me to do that because i had just signed flotsam and i wasn't i didn't even get the chance to make a record with jason in the band although right. we did make the the record no place for disgrace um At the same time, Lars, I believe, called Brian Slagle over at Metal Blade, and he said, Jason Newstead. So uh, Lars was hearing about Jason from two different people that he respected. Uh, So really, if it wasn't, I guess you could say, maybe if it wasn't for me... Yeah, sure, Jason might not have had that career, but you know, he was a person, he is a person who is that charming and charismatic and forceful. So, you know what? I think he would have made it with or without our help, but due to those circumstances, uh, and him being so good, and he really did, once you saw him and heard him in that Metallica lineup, you knew, wow, well, they had the right guy. Now, that didn't go without torture. Right. And, you know, like I said, you know, these were young people who lost their brother. Sure. And uh, so they didn't make it easy for him at the beginning. Uh, you know, he was in the band. I think there was still grief and anger happening there. So, uh,. They treated him like shit, yeah um but you know he's he's a smart cookie, he's a tough guy, and he withstood it, and uh you know I think underlying all of that because of the loss, it was like, you know what, you will never be cliff but and it, 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 I think all of that is said and done out of pain, you know mm-hmm. right but uh You know, as we all know, he wound up being in the band for probably 15 years after that. And it's a testament to how good he is and how he fit in the band from the get go and how he stood up to all of that torture that the guys put him through until he became a full blown fourth member.
4: Do you feel that, you know, one thing we always hear about Injustice for yeah, All is the, oh no. the the lack of base on that record. And just hearing what you're saying there, do you yeah. feel that, that that choice maybe even if it was subconsciously by by mm-hmm. Lars and, and James and those guys mm-hmm. to, to have so little of the base coming through on the mix was maybe because of the hurt of losing Cliff?
3: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you know what? I never ever in all these years know what to say about that. You know, uh, we had various people come in um, like Mike Klink because we liked how Appetite for Destruction sounded, and he came in and he started working with the guys and that did not work very soon into it. Then I believe uh, didn't they have Fleming Rasmussen their engineer for their other records come in and uh, uh, I think he wound up, uh, did Fleming wound up mixing that record?
4: Ugh, off the top of my head, I'm not sure. I'd have yeah, to, yeah,
3: yeah, 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 we'll have to look that up. Um, but yes, I think it was subconscious. Uh, I think it's still an extraordinary record with great, great absolutely. songs. Absolutely. And we probably will never know exactly why it sounds, how it sounds. But, you know, it's still a very listenable record. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, you could put that thing on loudly, and uh, those songs are just uh, killer.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And mm-hmm. the the film, again, Who the Fuck is That Guy, The Fabulous mm-hmm. Journey of Michael Alago. Rob Zombie is in the movie. He's also listed <laughs> as uh, an executive producer and yeah. was wondering how much... That's because he
3: gave us money.
4: Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> so he wasn't creatively yeah. that involved in it? He was just uh, oh. a... A guy well, fin- helping uh, finance you know, it.
3: Uh, I, I think the creativity came out in him speaking in the video in the in the uh, documentary. Uh, he did give us some money so we could finish making the film. Uh, you know, Rob is also an extraordinary person with a real vision. And you know, when I first met him in 1989, 90, I saw him in a little club, and I thought, "Wow, this guy is going to be huge." And I believed in everything that he said to me. I'm going to be big. I'm going to make movies, and I said right on let's just do it so you know at some point i wound up signing them to geffen and um another story where the rest is history
4: yeah cool cool well we're looking forward to the book and again thank you so much for your time today michael
3: oh mark thank you so very much i appreciate this
4: all right michael take care
3: okay bye-bye
4: metallica a band that back in 2015 performed at heavy montreal was it 2000 no that was that was 2014 i think metallica performed at heavy montreal i was at heavy montreal that year and uh then i was there the next year 2015 which was that slayer i i get confused uh, they all kind of blend together no, Slayer, I think, was the same year as Metallica. I think that was Twisted Sister of Metallica Slayer. Then the next year was, oh God, Warrant was there and Fozzie and Faith No More and Testament and Lamb of God. And yeah, so, um, wow. It's always such a great festival, heavy Montreal. I love it. I love it. I love it, which is why I will be there again this year. Um, I'm, you know, it's July 28th and 29th. So many great bands, Warbringer, who we had in the show trivium, of course, Rob zombie, Marilyn Manson power trip. I love power trip. Cannot wait to see them. So many great bands sleep go to Heavy Montreal, July 28th and 29th in Montreal at Parc Jean Trapeau. I'm actually going to go up a day early for the 77 Montreal thing, which happens on that Friday, July 27th, which is all punk rock and and hardcore bands. So I'm going up for that. Then I'll be there for the official Heavy Montreal Festival um, on the 28th and 29th. So to recap... July 27th is 77 Montreal. Tons of great punk, hardcore rock bands playing that day. The next day at the same location at Parc Jean Trapeau in Montreal is Heavy Montreal on the 28th and again on the 29th, a two-day festival. Three days if you kind of blend the two festivals together there. All right, it's going to be wonderful. I will see you there. We're doing interviews in the press tent. Cannot wait, cannot wait. Heavy Montreal. And if you're going, let me know. I'd love to meet up uh, and have a, a nice Molson up there. Do a Talking Metal toast in person. Eat some dumplings, have a rabbit burger. Yeah, that's how they do it at Heavy Montreal. It's one of North America's greatest hard rock and metal festivals for sure. Big thanks to Michael Alago for joining us here on Talking Metal. We heard for, uh, from Metallica right there. Orion... A song James Hetfield did not write the words for. Because there's no words. It's instrumental, right? Yeah, and it is... Wow, what a perfect album. Master of Puppets. Love that record so much. And what a perfect bunch of supporters we have on Patreon. We're up to 19. I feel like we lost one of you guys. I'm not sure who it was. But I think we have Mike Jones, Jay Venensky, Johns or Jans, Jacobson, Steve Hoker. BJ Kluglowski, BJ, I wanted to let you know uh, that I really appreciate you setting up the interview with with Andy Bolton, which is a part of today's uh, episode. I, I you this happened because of you and it was long overdue. So thank you, BJ, and thank you for supporting us on on uh, Patreon and also to your son, Brody, for supporting us on Patreon. Rom, Ron, Ron Embody. Uh, who else we got on Patreon? Metal Dan, Sean Morgan, James Bennett, David Gray, Michael Street. Michael, I hope you're doing well. You going to the Rock and Pod Expo again this year? I know we had dinner with you last year. Um, we're not going to make it this year. Got a, got a bunch of shit going on. It was It's actually my son's birthday weekend, but then beyond that, we're having my grandma's funeral that weekend kind of delayed if she just died, sadly, and the, we're not going to have the family kind of gathering funeral type of thing until August, late August. So I will not make the rock and pod expo, but uh, just curious if Michael Street is going this year. And Michael, again, thank you for your, your continued support on Patreon of Talking Metal. Rick Bunch, Jonathan Turner, JB Allen, you guys all rock. Anthony Mackey, thank you, thank you all you dudes. Fred Rutz, Fred, I got your email on talking rock. We'll address that in just a second. John Bouvier, Bouviar, I'm not sure. Barviari. I'm terrible with names, guys. And I have a I have this horrible name that, that people have such a trouble pronouncing Stregel because it has no E's in it. You know, it's just an I, S T R I G L. So you'd think I would have more compassion when I when I say people's names, which is usually why I like Emily to read these names, because she's has a brain in her head and can actually read. But John Boviari. Yeah, I don't know. Ralph Petrie, my old friend, one of the few people that I've actually, well, I know a few of you guys, Jay, I know, and some of the other guys, but, but, um, you know, Ralph is a guy I used to work with and Ralph, you continue, I don't even know if you listen to the show, but you continue to support it on Patreon. So on the outside chance you are listening, Mr. Petrie, hope all is well with uh, your new life out there in San Francisco and, and, uh, love to catch up with you at some point. All right. Without further ado, we need to keep things moving here and get into our next interview with Andy Bolton from Tokyo Blade. So let's, uh, let's go back again. We heard, some, we heard Night of the Blade to open up the episode, but let's go way back to 1983 right now. This is Tokyo Blade with If Heaven is Hell, followed by my interview with a legendary guy from a legendary band, Andy Bolton. Here we go, a little Tokyo blade here on Talking Metal. It's Mark Striegel of The Talking Metal Podcast, and on the line, a legendary heavy metal hero, Andy Bolton from Tokyo Blade. Andy, how are you?
2: I'm very well, Mark. How are you?
4: I'm good. I'm good. And... I am excited because Tokyo Blade has a new record out, and it sounds like, or well, it's about to come out on July 20th. It'll be probably days away by the time we get this posted. And it sounds like this is a real special record because it is reuniting you guys uh, with, with Alan, and I wanted That's to just, right. yeah, I wanted to hear about this. Alan Marsh is back in Tokyo Blade. How did this all come about? How did you and Alan first reconnect.
2: Okay, well. Um really it was all down to um we the, the band when the band got together with more or less the original lineup about uh, 7 or 8 years ago, um we we didn't think it was really I didn't think it was really appropriate to ask Alan back. The main reason the main reason, it's a long story, but the, the, the broken down version of it was that we never wanted to get rid of Alan in the first place because we've always been friends. Um, you know, we we all, apart from two members of the band, three, three of us grew up in the same town and we were, we're good friends and we really didn't want it. Um, but the record company at the time basically wanted their guy. They, they had a guy who... Um, Uh, they they really wanted him to be the singer in Tokyo Blade and and so they put a lot of pressure on us to to get rid of Alan and they gave us various reasons and excuses and we kind of kicked against it as much as we could and really when we put it to Alan and said look this is what they want to do and they they want you Alan sort of kind of obviously was pretty hurt and reacted quite badly and just said oh you know well fuck you you know I'm off Um, which is not what we wanted to happen we 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 really, we'd said to Alan, you know, we're we're going to, we're going to fight, you know, we're going to fight. No, 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 oh, screw it, you know. Um,
4: and this is the first time Alan was in the band, so we're going back to the 80s at this point. Absolutely. That's what you're talking about now, right?
2: Absolutely, yeah, that was the very first time that Alan was in the band. And then when the band kind of re um, reformed again about seven or eight years ago, um, I, I, I wasn't sure how Alan would react to be honest. That's the, the truth to me. I was, I was being a bit chicken shit, really. I, I, I think I, at the time I should have called Alan up and said, look, you know, but I wasn't sure how he'd, he'd react to it. So we decided to just put the word out that we needed a singer and see what happened. And we ended up with, um, Nikolai renau a German guy on, on vocals, um, right. which, which was okay. And Nick's a, Nick's a good singer um he's kind of very very difficult to work with um so it it, it wasn't i don't i think it was pretty doomed that it wasn't going to last too long um then when we parted we, we realized it really wasn't working with with nick and we, we parted company and and everybody was kind of like what do we do now what do we do now do you, you know do we just hang it up or and just call it a day and forget about it once and four and I, i'm uh, i suppose really it was me i'm a bit I'm a bit sort of tenacious, really, and I didn't didn't really want to just let it go. I felt that there was there was a bit more in us, there was a little bit more in the band, and uh, you know, I, I wanted to do something. So um, Alan and I <clears throat> um, had kept, you know, had been in touch again, um, probably about six months before we we finished with with Nick. Um alan had, had phoned me up or um, actually came round to see me and said look i'm a i'm at a bit of a loose end and um you know you and I have always written you know well together we've always created songs that we've we, that we thought are you know um are good um do you fancy just writing some stuff together and I, and I've got my own kind of little studio right um here at home and um alan said you know do you do you do you fancy doing that and I said yeah why, why not and I said I've got some ideas for some stuff I said and some of it kind of isn't really necessary necessarily um what I would call Tokyo Blade material so that's what we you know that's what we decided to do when we were writing together and working together again and you know the lads were kind of cool with it we weren't we were just kind of messing around and then when the thing happened with Nikolai um the lad said you know how a, what do you think about asking Alan? And I said, Phew. well, I said <laughs> I've been working with him. Again, I said we still we see each other once a week. We get together and we write stuff together and just you know hang out and have a beer and a moan about life and right. all that kind of thing. So I said, um, all I can say is I'll I'll put it to him and see what he says. So um, Alan came round. I said, okay, <clears throat> I've got a proposition. Um, I've spoken to the, the guys and. You know they're 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 behind it do you what do you think and um i was quite surprised really when alan said yes right um well. and uh he, he said yeah i'm you know i'm i'm fine whatever so of course that was the that was it the next thing alan was back in the band and we alan and i ended up um on, on a sort of a side project with a guy, another guy that I I've known for years and years, who had a band, um, but he was kind of short of a singer, and short of a guitar player. So he had, uh, you know, he's a bassist, and he had a drummer, and he had another guitarist. But he needed a lead guitar player, and although he's a singer himself, he's not not great. So um, he he basically said to me. I'm doing this project. Could you know? Would you and Alan be interested in helping me out? And because we weren't doing anything else, we we did. And the guys sort of heard some of the stuff we did and said, "Oh, you know, sounds like Hal's singing sort of better than ever." And am like yeah. Um, how about, you know, how about it? So I said, "Okay, I'll ask him." So Alan said right. yes. Um, and because we've been writing together for this project that we were doing, and because we'd written some other stuff together. We just started writing songs and thought, well, actually what happened was when we were in the studio doing this, this uh, side project thing, um, the guy from the record company had said to us, uh, oh, you two guys are from Tokyo Blade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he said, um, you know, we'd be interested in doing an album with you if, if you wanted to, to do it. And this is our cool. current record company, 3MS. Right. Yep. And uh, we really liked them. We really, we thought, you know, for, for once, from what from what we've seen so far, we've got... A record company for once in our life that are not just going to just not to screw us, they're actually behind us. They've actually, you know, put some real good input into the band, and um, you know, it's it's probably a good thing to do. And I, my my point of view is I've always felt that there should have been a follow up to Night of the Blade. There should have been something. After that, Black Hearts kind of bombed, and it was a—it was, I think, because it was a radical, quite a radical change of direction. Because I was writing with Vic and not up writing with Alan. Right. Okay. Um. So we said, okay, let's let's do an album. So that was it. Yeah. <laughs> in a nutshell.
4: Okay, so there was that point in the '90s. I mean, we're going back probably over 20 years ago, where where Alan was back in the fold for. For burning down, uh, burning down paradise. Yeah, right? you're now, absolutely
2: right. Yeah, now, yeah, now
4: that how right. did that end poorly too, or what happened at that time?
2: Um, that kind of got, <laughs> that just got kind of really complicated. Um, we did burn down paradise. We had the usual run of bad luck that Tokyo Blade seems to be prone to, which is basically that we don't, we did, we we were suffering from very very poor management. Um, the record company that we were with were, were not really giving it anything at all, um, and John Wiggins, who, when he just before he originally joined Tokyo Blade, he was with Paul Diano um, in a ba- uh, in Paul's first band after he after a, um, he got the push from Iron Maiden, which was um, Lone Wolf. Okay. Um, so then. Paul um, Diano, John left Lone Wolf and left Paul, and came back, you know, and and joined Tokyo Blade. And then after Tokyo Blade finished, he went back and did some 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 other stuff with Paul Diano. And because Burning Down Paradise, we uh, we were suffering from poor management and lack of record company support. um, What basically happened was that um, John decided uh, Diano had approached him and said. You know, I'm going to do this album. I'm going to do a tour and one thing or another. And I want you back in. And um, I've seen, you know, I've seen the band. I want, you know, you could get a hold of the drummer and the bass player. So basically, John went off taking the bass player and drummer with him
4: to to back Diana. Um, yeah, yeah,
2: uh, with Diana and kind of left me and Al high and dry, so to speak. Okay. Um. So that was the end of that, and it was kind of weird having Alan and John and myself in the band without having Steve and Andy. It just, that kind of just didn't feel too right to me either. So right. I, I think that, that, that run its course really. And then that was it. We'd kind of all laid, laid everything up and just said, okay, that's it. You know, cool. That's, that's enough Tokyo blade. That's it, It's done.
4: Right. All right. Well, all, all that's history. And now we are 2018, July 2018. The new record Unbroken by Tokyo Blade is about to is about to drop. And I heard a few of the sound samples you guys had up on like the SoundCloud page and, and they, they they sounded real good. But, uh, you know, I didn't really hear a full song. And I just I guess I wanted to pick your brain about the musical direction on this record, since I really haven't heard much of it where where is it musically are you going back to your to your roots is it a new direction musically what can we expect on the brand new Tokyo Blade album Ooh. unbroken
2: <laughs> that's a really really good question that is a really really good question and it's a really difficult one to answer sure um i i think personally it's it's a step it, it, it's it's kind of it, it goes both ways. It goes backwards and forwards at the same time. Wow! Um, okay. it, it it does hark back to the original Tokyo Blade for sure because we've got the twin guitars in there, which we've always had. Alan and I were both huge fans of Thin Lizzy, um, and really that's where and UFO and really that's where our sound, I think, um, you know, kind of originated in with when when we first began. Um, but at the same time, the the, the problem is that you, get, you quite often get people say, oh, you know, it's it's not like the early stuff, or there was a, a rawness to the early stuff and stuff like that. Well, when when you're recording an album and you're 21 years old and you, and you make something like Night of the Blade, and now I'm 57 years old and you make a new right. album, you, you're going to be playing differently. Sure. Uh, now, whether people class that as better or... I, I would say um, I would say that I'm a better player now than I was then. Is the sound as raw as it is then it, as it was then? No, of course it isn't because technology has advanced to such a stage that I can put together a really reasonable sounding album in my little home studio. Whereas in those days, you needed you know a, 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 a massive studio with tons of gear and two inch tape and the whole that whole thing. Right. Um, and of course, as a player. Um, you, you know, you you evolve and you 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 know. I I never stop learning, and I, I I think you know any guitar player that's worth anything would tell you the same that you, you never stop learning. You 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 pick up on different things, different techniques, and your playing style changes, and maybe you know different aspects of, of of your your playing come through for for a number of reasons. And I think one of the reasons, and and a very important reason, is that you kind of just think, OK, we, Alan and I didn't sit down and do this new record and think, OK, we've got to make it sound like Night of the Blade or the first album. We said, let's write some songs. Let's not worry about what it is or how we do it or anything else. We'll see what comes out. We'll write a bucket load of them. We'll write 20 songs and we'll present it to the lads. We'll demo it all. We'll present it to the lads and say, what do you think? And we'll we'll decide between us what we think is... The, just the best songs, um, not what's closest to what we've done before or, or what we think or, or in any particular, particular direction that we feel that we should be going. Just write songs, because my point of view on, on music is that, um, you know, you, you can be in a, in a band and you could have the, you know, the, the world's greatest guitar player in there and the world's greatest drummer and the world's greatest singer. That doesn't mean you're going to write great songs. Yeah. That just means you're going to have great musicianship. And there's a, right. there's a very distinct line there. Um, uh, to me, a, a great song is, is a song that that, that, uh, that strikes a chord with people in one way or another, whether they like the, the melody of the song or whether they think the lyrics have really got something to say or whatever. Um, or just the attitude kind of, means, of the song, yeah. I mean, just yeah, the vibe, yeah. you know? Yeah, the vibe. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a, that's a, a non-definable uh quality isn't it it's yeah like, absolutely um, you know you can listen to something and say i love this song oh, i have no idea why
5: right <laughs> or um, yeah
2: you know it, it, there's just songs that that stand the test of time and you know that's been proved over and over with with all the greats you know the zeppelins and the and the, the floyds and the you know whoever's um have all stood the test of time because they were they wrote great songs absolutely and and they struck a chord with people the the vibe and the and the the general feel of the song struck a chord with people and kind of that's the way it is so the short answer is we didn't set out to write night of the blade part two i think we may be may have got somewhere near it we did do we have put a song on there that kind of harks harks back to one of our classics which is the song of heaven is hell we 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 have done a song on the album, which we because we said it would be nice to do something to just link, to to create a link there because there's been such a gap, and it would be nice to sort of link that up. So we did write a song called My Kind of Heaven, which is definitely a nod <laughs> to um, If Heaven is Hell in in more than you know in more than a slight way. Right. And then and even then we were listening to it going, should we do that? Really? Is that? Oh, and then we thought, oh fuck it, why not? It doesn't. We're not going to make millions of pounds out of it. Who cares? We'll do it, and hopefully the fans will like it. And if they don't, then they don't.
4: Right. (laughs) now, You've you've mentioned that classic record a number of times, uh, Night of the Blade. And that was, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here on the history, but that was an album that that Alan... Was involved in like with the writing and stuff, but then he he was not on the record itself. That was Vic came in to do the vocals on the record.
2: That's right. Well, it's kind of a little bit more complicated than that. What than that, yeah. actually happened is that Alan and I wrote Night of the Blade. Okay, and recorded it. We recorded it with Alan. Um, we had a couple of big festivals in Europe to do shortly, almost immediately after we'd finished the recording. We went off to do them that's when the record company jumped in and and kind of stirred the shit and started all the trouble right right. and then they wanted to get their guy in uh and that was a very strange we had the thing with alan and alan went his way but the the album was already done and it had his vocals on it and it was all recorded everything was finished and um they sent this guy down that they wanted in the band and, and it was a kind of a really bizarre situation because he traveled on a train for about four hours to get to to um john's house because john has always lived in london and you know london is kind of where the music business everything revolves around london sure and we used to rehearse in london all the time because the facilities were there and everything else so um we booked the studio the rehearsal studio for this guy to come in and rehearse and uh he, he came down about it was about a four-hour uh train trip from where where he he lived up at up which is where they were based up in yorkshire and uh he he arrived and we said okay we're you know we're, we're going to go to down to the rehearsal studio in an hour or so and he said oh, oh okay i'll just i'm just going to pop around the shop and get some cigarettes you know is there a shop near and them I said yeah yeah know yeah. and off the guy went and he never came back wow. <laughs> he never saw him again
5: wow. um
2: and we rang up the record company after a couple of hours and said because, of course, mobile phones then didn't—they didn't exist. Yeah. You know, we're, we're talking about such a, a a long time ago, and um, eventually, you know, after after a couple of hours or a few hours, we we phoned up the record company and said, "What's happened to your guy?" You know, we went out to, uh, has he been in touch? And they said, "No, is, this is really weird." And blah, blah, and a couple of hours later, they phoned John, and said, uh, he, "He's back here." And we wow uh, okay. Why? What's going on? Uh he didn't think he could hack it. He he just kind of bottled it. Wow. So we said, Right, okay, great. Now we've got a tour booked uh and we're going out on the road, everything's booked, everything's in place. Now we don't have a singer. And they kind of said, Well, yeah, yeah, we need to sort one out and we're like, Well, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> thanks for really fucking that whole thing up for us. Wow. So, um, and and this is very interesting. And uh, well, if you're a fan of Tokyo Blade and you haven't heard the story, it's very interesting. Um, and it was a very interesting chapter and absolutely 100 percent true and accurate. Which is that we had a tour coming up with um, the Irish uh, support to the Irish band Mummas Boys in Europe. Right. It was our first tour. We'd done a couple of big festivals with Alan, but this was the first tour that we were ever gonna uh, that we were doing. We were support to uh, the Irish band Mama's Boys. We put adverts out in the music press that we desperately required a singer. Um, We got inundated with demo tapes and myself and my manager sat there at at, at the offices that we we had at the time and and listened through to everything and just said, no, 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 no. And the only thing that came through that was even kind of in the ballpark was this this tape from a, a guy called Vic Wright who I believe the, the band he was in at the time were called Shark, I think. Okay. Uh, or Bob, Bob, Bobus, I can't remember. I really can't right. remember. Anyway, so <clears throat> we listened to the tape and thought, well, you know, he looks pretty good and he's young and um, let's, let's give it a go. So we phoned him up and said, you know, we're, we're interested, we've heard your tape and stuff and could you come down for an audition um, because we're going on tour next week. <laughs> and uh, he couldn't make it. He couldn't get down. So we had to make a decision there and then, are we going to have this guy, and we're not going to get to audition him. We're not even going to get to hear him sing until the first night of the tour. Yeah. And this is absolutely true. Um, So he got down as quickly as he could, which was the the day that we were due to depart for the tour. He arrived at my house at around about 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock in the evening. He walked through the door. He didn't know any of our material so i sat him down in the corner with a with a sony walkman and um a load of lyrics scribbled on the sheets because we were support band, so we only had an hour of slot but there was still a lot for the guy to learn
4: sure especially
2: sure. as as you know i sat him down in the chair at nine o'clock and said there's the walkman there's the lyrics by the way our first gig is um tomorrow wow oh my god talk <laughs> about pressure <laughs> yeah absolutely um, and that was it. He sat there all evening. We left, my, we, we stayed up. He sat in the corner, just listening to stuff over and over again with all the lyrics, and we left my place, I think, about 4 a.m. that morning, um, so none of us had, had any sleep, obviously, and neither had he. Um, still had the Walkman headphones you know, glued to his ears. Uh, climbed into the old van that we had um, with all the gear and our crew so it wasn't a, a massive. It was a big van, but not a massive van. So there was kind of the the five five of us band members. I think there were four. We had four crew that came with us, and all the gear in the back, all crammed into this this tiny little van, and um, <laughs> off we off we went. Um, we arrived in. Uh, we we had no money. That was the other thing. We had no money at all. Wow, no man. support from the record company. And our manager had given us a box of t shirts to sell and said that's, uh, and, and whatever cash he could personally scrounge up. Right. So he said, okay, that's the money for, for, for fuel for the van. Um, there is no money for food. Um, you, you're going to have to, you know, you're going to get a very little amount of money at the end of each gig, but really that's going to be, you know, you're a support band, that's going to be really for, for fuel money. Here's a box of t shirts that's going to be your food money. So we were kind of like, okay, we're going to prayer. Here we go. 14 days of life on the road with nothing. Right. Um, wow. we, we arrived in Calais. Uh, the French customs confiscated all the T-shirts. Because in those <laughs> oh, days <man. laughs> This is totally true. I swear to you, this is totally true. Uh, they confiscated the T-shirts because in those days it was pre-European Union. So we right. weren't allowed to actually sell goods without um, without kind of um paying taxes on them and all the rest of them so not only that but they gave us some on the spot fine which we had to pay so they confiscated the t-shirts took what little money we had so we were pretty dejected as you can imagine we were we were pretty kind of oh jesus this can this really be happening um so off we went to the first gig we stopped on the we we a a little bit of our own personal money which we we'd spent on kind of duty-free um, cigarettes and stuff on the on the ferry trip over to to france because again it was before the channel tunnel so everything went by all freight went by uh, ferry um, so we, we kind of bought a few cigarettes with the money we had um, we had just about enough money left to to stop somewhere and have a beer and just try to cheer ourselves up so we pulled into a um, a, a place in in france somewhere near calais um went into a small bar and ordered some beers came outside somebody smashed the window of the van stolen oh, oh, stolen stole my walkman we're oh, still listening to to try and learn the, the, the songs so they'd, they'd taken my walkman uh cigarettes and, and anything else that they could get their hands on. unfortunately the equipment was all locked in the back so they, they couldn't get to that um, so we were pretty pissed off by the Tommy yeah. the first gig, and that was the same check for the first gig. We were lucky because Mama's Boys let us have the same check. That was the first time we heard Vic sing. Wow! He hacked his way through a couple of songs, and they said, "Okay, that's that's your same check over." Um, luckily, we absolutely slayed it, we were right. we were just greeted fantastically, which initially. We were really, really worried about it because we thought, you know, we're, we're kind of we're blowing the main the headliner off every night. This is not going to be good. They're going to yeah. start, you know, uh, messing with the sound and and messing with the lights and stuff. And and they the exact opposite happened. And when they found out that we, the conditions that we were travelling in and and the fact we had no food, they actually had professional caterers on tour with them and they let us have the, the any of the food that that was left over right cool and um, they let us have that they let us a couple of us travel on their tour bus cuz you know they had a big kind of really nice tour bus and we had this crummy van um and we got through the 14 days somehow and we did wow. uh, it was an absolute triumph we we could we couldn't really believe what was happening and um the fans uh, the response was just uh, just incredible just beyond anything that we could have ever dreamed of so we got back to england and um the first thing the record company said well you you know you need to now record his vocals um for night of the blade which again was a bit painful really to have to go back into the studio and have vic record alan's vocals and alan's vocals taken off yeah yeah. It wasn't very nice, and it, of course, it you know it, it it couldn't have been really it couldn't have been very nice for Alan. Sure, no. Um, to have that happen, but you know you're young and you've got a record company, and they're the ones with the money, and they're calling the shots, and you know. So um, that was that. So Vic's vocals ended up on Night of the Blade, but originally it was recorded with Alan Marsh, and there is actually a version of Night of the Blade called Night of the Blade the night before. With um, that Alan uh, spoke was wrong because he had luckily left the studio with uh, a cassette tape of of what he'd done, and somehow later on somebody took some interest and said, "Well, look, give me that cassette tape, and we'll put out an album, and we'll call it, you know, Tokyo Blade, you know, the night, you know, the night, the blade, the night before," Um, and that's um, that was. Kind of it, that. that wow! It. Whatever
4: happened to, to Vic? because he, he, he was with you guys. What a couple years?
2: Yeah, he was with us yeah. a couple of years. Yeah. Well, there was another kind of weird twist uh, coming right up, which was uh, we we did the Mamas Boys tour, and straight away they were they said, "Okay, you're, you're going on tour again." This is uh, you know after well during the few days that we had to put Vic's vocals on the record. And we said, okay, who are we who are we supporting? They said, no, you're you It was a it was a smash
4: headlining, a wow!
2: You're going out headlining, and you're doing the same venues as you've just done. And we were like, what? And I said, yeah, 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 this is it. You know, you're you're on your way. So um, off we went, and it was tour, tour, tour. And you know, we did um, a, a, a brief American tour, Lo- loads and loads of European stuff. Um, a few big festivals. We played the Breaking Sound Festival with Ozzy and Dio, and you know that kind of thing. And um, a lot of the festivals we had done in Europe, we've done with Metallica because Metallica at, the, at that time were about the same kind of size as we were, really. Yeah. We were, sure. Um, and also, we were very friendly with them at the at the time because um, they used to come. Well, Lars and James used to come to England a lot, and they used to stay with Andy, our bass player. They used to stay at his house and. They used to go around London, you know, the music scene, and Andy would take them round and show them the Marquee Club and all the all the kind of music venues. And whilst they were here, obviously they were trying to do some business and and get a get a foothold um, in Europe and and in the in the UK to come over, you know, with their band and do some stuff. So we had, a, you know, I had a good relationship with Metallica that we didn't ever have any, well, way way no problems with them. They were, they yeah. were um Very beholding to Andy, of course, because you know he used to let them stay at the house when they came over. Um, So we did that. We did that, and it was all going okay. And then we did. um, Then we did Black Heart's album, which was written by Vic and myself. And Vic wanted to take the band in a a bit of a radical direction. And I, I think Backhart has its merits in places, but it, it's not really Tokyo Blade, and it didn't do very well, right. especially not in Europe. I think American audiences are, are generally more open to to new things than European audiences. European audiences are kind of, no, this, you know, this is what we want, this is what we expect, um, and this isn't what we've got. So it didn't do tremendously well and it wasn't going tremendously well, but we did when we were having a lot of, we the the big fight had started with our record company power station, who never paid us a penny from all the albums we sold. And we were now locked um, in in a battle with them um, just to even keep going. They were sticking injunctions on us and all sorts of things. It was really hard work, but we did get a break because our manager called us up and he said, okay, blue oyster cult want to come and tour Europe. And, um, they want you to um, do the do the support, but they're going to kind of treat it as a double headline. You know, they're not going to they're they're going to they're going to be the second band on every night. Um, but you know, they're going to give you an equal time of you know playing time and everything else. And we wow. were like, why do they want to do that? And they said, well, they're kind of not really very big in Europe, and they know that you've got a big European following, and it'll do them good. So you know they're they're happy to go with it. So we said okay, yeah, right, whatever. It's another tour. You know we can get out there and 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 do what we do. And um, it was about two or three weeks before the tour was due to kick off. John, um, you know our other guitar player, had started calling um, Vic um, at home and uh, could never catch him in. And his parents were like, um, oh, uh, you know, because he still lived with his his, his parents. And um, they were like, "Oh, he's he's not in tonight. He's out doing this." And, doing that. and as I say, of course, this was all before mobile phones were even organized. Yeah. So,
5: right. you
2: know, you you just had a, one landline number to call, and and that was it. And um, they couldn't get a hold of him. And John kept phoning me up, and he said he kept saying to me, "I I, I don't know. I don't know what's happening. I just," he said, "He just won't return my calls." I said, "I don't know. I'm I'm lost. I don't know what to do." So I said, "Well." you're just gonna to have to keep on i said because we we need him down for rehearsals we you know so john kept going and eventually um in the middle of being fobbed off again by vick's and one of vick's parents his mum his dad his, his other parent came on the phone and said look it's time for us to be honest vick's vick's left he's gone to live in america so we were like wow. oh, right when was he planning to tell us this piece of information then and they said, oh, well, you know, it was kind of near Christmas, and he didn't want to spoil your Christmas and everything. And we were like, okay. Wow. Um, and I think, really, that was a result of the fact that we we'd, we hadn't long finished the American tour. Vic loved America. He loved everything about America. His brother already lived there. And he decided that's where he wanted to go. He had the opportunity to do it. Um, and off he went and did it. You know, it would have been kind of nice of him to have <laughs> told you guys. Yeah. Day. <laughs> so uh, we had to find a standing singer which was a guy called Carl Sentence who um, recently did some work with Giza Butler I think and a few other people he's quite quite well known here um, know. great singer um, he kind of stood in and um, did that tour with us and then I think really that was when the fights all started breaking out and you know everybody you know the record company were just trying to wriggle out of, of, of you know they were just kind of basically denying that that they they had any of our money and that i'd had it all or the manager had had it all or you know a another had had it all and all this kind of thing and it just created so much shit and i was so pissed off with the whole thing and it just that was it you know we kind of got back from that tour and that was that was the end of of that that lineup
4: right on yeah. We are talking with Andy of Tokyo Blade, hearing some great old stories, just incredible stories, Andy. And, uh, you know, the future of Tokyo Blade looks really promising because there's a brand new record on the way with you and Alan back together. Uh, where's the best place to get this uh, this record, Unbroken, which is going to be released on July 20th?
2: Okay, well, at the moment, um, I all I know is that the the record is available through um our record company um 3ms um you can go to the tokyo blade website which is tokyoblade.com there's a few sample tracks from the album up on on the website some 30 kind of 30 second snippets
4: right yeah i heard them
2: yeah all right okay cool good stuff um and um you know we'll be we'll be um the, the, the link is is on there to the 3ms um website where you can actually order the album I, I don't know 100% yet what kind of distribution 3MS have got, so I don't know what's happening about the distribution as far as um, uh, America goes at all. Right. That would be down to to them and what they're they're doing about that. So um, best bet is to is to kind of just keep an eye out for it and Google it, and <laughs> you'll hopefully find it. So well, I well hope you do. Yeah. Um, find it somewhere. Of course, it will be available on digital download on the usual platforms, iTunes and. Etc. Uh, Etc. Cetera, et cetera. So, um, but for the actual physical product, at the moment, all I know is they will be available on the 3MS Music website. Um, I'm sure that they've sorted out some kind of distribution deal worldwide, but I don't know who with or any details. I'm sorry.
4: Right on. No, no problem. We will we will keep our eyes on that website, and we will have links up in today's show notes on TalkingMetal.com. And, uh, Andy, I, I'm going to have to let you go in a, in a, just a few minutes here, but, you know, you guys were really associated with the, the new wave of British heavy metal uh, movement, if you will, and uh-huh. just was wondering how how, how close were you, were you with, you know, some of the, the bigger bands that came out of that move, movement, like you mentioned Paul Deano earlier, obviously Iron Maiden and, and Def Leppard. Were you tight with those guys back in the day?
2: Um, I, John, um, John and Andy grew up in Walthamstow, which is kind of Iron Maiden's area. And and when we, uh, in the early days, we used to play at the Ruskin Arms, which was Iron Maiden's, uh, one of their big, um, stomping rounds uh, in the early days before they got signed. And, um, uh, John, John knows, John certainly knows them all, uh, as acquaintance I wouldn't say friends, but certainly as acquaintances, you know, John will bump in occasionally to bump into Dave Marion it's got in a pub somewhere, it's kind of hi Dave, hi John, and that's it, you know. Right, okay. Um and of course he did spend a lot of time with Paul Diano, although there's so much there's obviously a lot of bad blood between Paul and um you know maiden in particular Steve Harris. Um so I uh blah, blah. um I don't think so much now. That's probably not totally yeah. accurate. I think I don't think you know, Steve Harris particularly cares one way or the other, and I'm probably pretty sure that Paul doesn't either. So, right. but there was for some time a bit of bad blood there. there. Um, the the others we we we've played with with them, but they not really. Nobody is really. We're, we're not really tight with anybody. I don't think Andy has even spoken to anybody from Metallica for donkey's years. Right. Um, we because we kind of just I don't know. Like we just. I suppose <laughs> I suppose we're just too normal. Yeah, <laughs> I think we're too normal. I don't know. People are always telling us that they say it's just like meeting, you know five guys that I don't know work in a bar or something when they meet us. Right on. Um, we're just very normal people, and you know we don't kind of we don't um, we don't go out of our way to to not not in any deliberate way. We just kind of do what we do and get on with it
4: right on. And so the new record again unbroken. It, it, obviously you Andy uh doing the lead guitar, you got John doing rhythm, Andy doing bass and Steve's on drums, right?
2: Yeah, the 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 um I do I do, the, the lead guitar is split 50-50 between John and I. Okay. Um John, you know, most of the songs actually on the album have got two solos in cuz we we just love we just love guitar, you know, we're just a guitar band. Um, so most of the songs have got two solos on, John does one, I do the other, obviously. We've both got very different styles from each other. Um, and, you know, all, always have had, but the, the kind of, the, the way two of the two of us work together, uh, seems to work well. And then as you say, Alan, obviously on vocals, yep. Steve Pierce on drums, Andy Wrighton on bass. Um, and that's the, that's the lineup
4: awesome well again we can't wait to hear the new record it's on the way unbroken by tokyo blade and and it's been an honor talking to you thanks for spending some time with us today on talking metal
2: mark thank you very much and thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me um and just to any fans of the band that are listening you know from the bottom of all our hearts thank you so much for keeping the faith and staying with us all these years we really hope you enjoy the new record and uh You know, what more can I say?
4: Ladies and gentlemen, Andy Bolton from Tokyo Blade. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode.
2: No problem at all. Thank you very much, Mark.
4: blade music right there devil's gonna bring you down off of unbroken talking metal toast to the one and oh excuse me uh, to the one and only tokyo blade i was obviously already doing a little drink in there ah, yes sir yeah man all right some more um support needed guys uh Just wrapped up a little work. I got a month of work on on Suits, USA Network show. I'm doing the the behind-the-scenes stuff for them. Uh, They're continuing the show, even though the princess, Megan Merkel, has left the show. So I was fortunate enough to do a month of work on that show. I'm currently out again, Uh, you know, I went freelance, I was a staff TV guy for many years at the Sci-Fi Channel and VH1 and MTV before that, I went freelance back in 2011, and this has been the driest period in 2017 since I did that, Uh, and man, it sucks, because there's nothing like feeling stressed out, that you're not providing for your family like, like you should be, and you know i have to admit it's definitely been a dark period for me um hoping that things turn around i'm not really i'm still grasping and trying to figure out why work is not as plentiful as it used to be for me in the tv business and you know thank god i have the talking metal podcast cuz uh, it, it not because it makes me any money it makes me very little money thanks to you guys it does actually do a little better than break even now um, but it, uh, it gives me something to, to live for here. <laughs> it's not that bad. Of course I got my family and everything else, but it gives me something to do. Let's put it that way. And I appreciate you guys listening to the, uh, the episodes and support us. Leave a five-star review for us on iTunes and, uh, spread the word Buy a t-shirt you can do that by sending my PayPal account 20 bucks. Uh, my PayPal account is off my Gmail. It's streaglmark at gmail.com. Send me 20 bucks. I'll send you a t shirt. Just let me know your shirt size and address. And what else? And you can, of course, support us on Patreon with a month- monthly pledge. Those are awesome uh there's a couple of you guys on patreon you know if you do a monthly pledge on patreon I will send you a t shirt if it's over five dollars a month and there's a few of you dudes who uh you still haven't you still haven't uh got got given me your your shirt size and address to send you a t shirt you are um definitely uh, deserve one so Yeah, please support us on Patreon. Just search, go to Patreon and search Talking Metal. All this stuff is in the show notes. Leave us a voicemail. I love getting those voicemails from you guys. The number is in the show notes. And what else? Um, You can use our Amazon links if you're in the UK, Canada, or the uh, United States. It's just an additional step before going to Amazon. You go to TalkingMetal.com or TalkingRock.net poke around there a little bit you should see our amazon links use the appropriate link for your country zip on over to amazon and go go about buying your uh, flat screen tv or whatever purchase you're going to do and i get a a small kickback on that and uh, you know it it helps i get like a little 30 dollar gift card from them every month or two thanks to what you guys are doing to support talking metal and and listen i don't take it for granted but Back to the Patreon thing. We're way below where we want to be. Please support us there. We, we really need to boost that up. Okay, guys? And on that note, we're going to hit some more music, and then we're going to talk to a guy named Harrison from Tempt and hear his story, okay? And uh, this is a good story, too. And always, always love to hear from young guys who are keep, keeping the torch burning and bringing us rock music. So thanks to you Harrison for doing that and uh, without further ado this is a song called Under My Skin by Tempt and then we will hear from Harrison who is in that band
0: Stop and many years ago you was a that i got to know
4: Mark Striegel of Talking Metal and Talking Rock and calling in on the line. We have Harrison Marcello, the guitarist in the New York band, Tempt. Harrison, great to meet you.
1: Hey, how's it going, Mark? Good to be here.
4: Good. I always get excited by the name Harrison. That's my son's name. So uh good <laughs> <laughs> good good name. But let's let's talk about your band, which is more than good. You guys are great. Tempt. You guys are younger guys, which I always have so much respect for you guys who are a lot younger than me who are keeping the spirit of rock alive because it's it's a different it's a different time nowadays um, you know it's 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 just a, a different scene and and it makes me sad when I don't see a lot of young guys out there playing guitar and, and rocking out especially the hard rock side of things so hey thank you for being one of our, our rock soldiers out there and, and flying the the flag high for the younger generation.
1: No problem. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think we actually are seeing a legitimate comeback of um, rock music, hopefully. And, you know, I think there's, I think even with today's music climate, there still is a space and there still is room for, you know, fun, fun pop, fun arena rock with, guitars and hooks and all that stuff so i I have hope that that it's all cyclical and it's coming back because i think it is
4: right on now we just heard the song under my skin which is great love that song and that comes off of the the album that you guys put out back in 2016 called runaway which is coincidentally the name of one of my favorite bon jovi songs and you guys let's talk about bon jovi this is absolutely amazing you guys just teamed up with bon jovi to do what tell us about this
1: we actually just opened for him at uh, Madison square garden, which was pretty (laughs) insane. Uh, We got to meet John and everything and talk with him. um, And it was really amazing. It was, it was run through this uh, little kind of competition at this radio station out on Long Island called WBAB radio. um, And they were, we're thankful they hosted this and thankful for John for having us. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's really amazing that John as an artist is, is, kind of extending a hand to um younger people now that, you know, he's he's an established hall of fame rocker. Right. And lending a hand to bands like us and younger bands and allowing us the opportunity to do something like, you know, open for and play a legendary venue like Madison Square Garden.
4: That's really, really amazing and congratulations. Wow, what a what a score.
1: Thank you so yeah, I mean it, it was uh it was it was one of the best days of my life so far, that's for sure.
4: Wow. So you guys put out some singles earlier this year, which I we'll we'll talk about those in a minute, but is there plans for another full-length record or new original material? Are you guys working on anything?
1: Yeah, we're 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 working on a lot actually. We have a bunch of new songs written. Um we're ba- we're basically now kind of just trying to figure out the logistics of releasing releasing a new record and how we want to release it. So um, we're definitely going to start getting music out by the summer, and there definitely will be a full-length album worth of material that we're going to get out ASAP. So we're very anxious and excited to get our new music out. I think everyone's going to love it. It's it's really cool. And um, yeah, hopefully we'll, hopefully we'll have it out as soon as possible. Definitely this summer there will be some new original music coming out from us.
4: Awesome. Cool. New original music coming from Tempt this summer. We're talking with Harrison, who is the guitar player in the band. You mentioned earlier that you feel there is a movement going on among maybe younger bands, and I hope younger rock fans, too. Can you describe where you're getting this feeling. What are you seeing as someone who's on the ground, who is more tapped into the, the younger scene than, than somebody like me? What, what are you feeling? What are you seeing? Why do you feel rock might be making a return?
1: Well, I mean, I obviously there's some have, have been, um, recently there's been a, you know, a band like Greta Van Fleet, who is gotten huge. I mean, they have millions of yeah. views on YouTube and they're, oh, yeah. they're very, uh, uh, more so than we are, very influenced, you know, by 70s rock and and that type of just kind of raw rock sound. And uh, um, also, you know, there's I think there's other kind of trends that have been happening in um, pop music. Um, you know, like a lot of Bruno Mars's last stuff. Though it's not rock. It's, it's right. very kind of like 80s. And retro but with you know a lot of anthemic things um even some of the even the last two taylor swift records have you know it, it's kind of like this edge in this kind of um we're getting this almost like arena sound back and people are writing these huge choruses and hooks with you know big even though it's not power chords in the case of taylor swift it's kind of you know this big you know gritty synth type thing um and so i just feel like we're, i feel like the way music's moved you know in the in the last few years it feels like even something like the new killers record was it it's like it's very kind of like rock fun um you know music you can dance to but also has like you know cool riffs and stuff in it which which is really what all that 80s and, and 70s classic rock and arena rock is is you know it was filling that void of you know we can write a rock song with great guitar hooks that it's going to be like a top 10 billboard song. So just, just what I'm kind of seeing, I'm just very inspired by a lot of the new music coming out from, you know, younger uh, artists and, you know, more established pop acts. It just all seems to me like people are kind of getting more into this, this kind of spirit um, that will allow rock to thrive again. So I'm very excited for our future. I think I think yeah. twenty eighteen was a really good year for
4: us. V- very cool. I cannot wait to hear the new material. When you know, when I go to concerts, there are some bands I go to, and I'll see uh, a, a good mix of younger people and older people. And then there are other concerts I go to where it's like everyone, everyone's like an old fogey, in my opinion. When you guys, like, I watched the video for for Under My Skin. It made me excited just to see all the younger faces and stuff not just you guys but the people you had in the video with you when you guys play is there do you appeal to both the younger crowd and the older crowd or is it more just a younger crowd who do you see as the typical fan of tempt
1: um i think we definitely appeal to both um and what's interesting for me is that um in my experience so far in 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 doing this band is that a lot of younger people don't actually have the experience that older people might think they have with rock music and a lot of them haven't really heard you know death leopard or you know classic bon jovi or you know europe or bands foreign or bands like that a lot of them haven't really even heard that type of music they haven't had parents you know who are into it or brought them to shows i mean I'm very lucky that my parents are were very into music and that type of culture and introduced right. me to that stuff at an early age. So that all seems kind of like, oh, yeah, how would you not know about these bands? But a lot of young people don't actually know like that type of musical aesthetic and how fun, you know, a rock show can be. So um, when we when we introduce, you know, our friends and then their friends, and then, you know, that's kind of cascaded just, you know, young people in general in our area. Uh, it's it's amazing how well they respond to it, considering all, you know, the doom and gloom that is constantly preached about how, you know, young people don't like rock and rock and roll is dead. So um, we we definitely have a good uh, mixed fan base. Obviously, we have older fans who see us and, and love it. Um, but I think, you know, getting that younger generation is is what's going to be the most important thing for a rock revival, and I think it's very
4: easily doable. Wow, that's great news. It's promising you know we're here the i just was listening to the radio and there was some guy on there who wrote a book about this is this is the end of rock we're in the twilight of of rock ending and then you know that same day i came home and and discovered you guys and it kind of gave me a glimmer of hope so i'm i'm all in with you guys i want i want you guys to succeed anything i can do to help support you please let me know let's let's talk about you mentioned the fan base uh, I don't know. Maybe this is stretching it a little bit, but it seems like Def Leppard is a fan of your cover of their song "Women" because uh, I was looking on Twitter and is it true they like retweeted your your cover and and commented that it was that it was great or something? What tell me what went down with Def Leppard your and your cover of them?
1: Yeah. So not only did they retweet it, but they actually posted it on all their social media, including That's Instagram. That's awesome! It's, it's, wow. It's and Def Leopard is personally my my favorite band ever. Um, I love the whole band. I love the the production that Mutt Lang did on on all those three records is like a huge inspiration for me. So yeah, that was pretty insane. We were actually just in a rehearsal studio. We, we we were rehearsing. We had just we had released the video like two weeks before, and all of a sudden, um our singer Zach was just on his phone scrolling through Instagram and noticed that he just came upon the post that Dash Loveford made posting it up. So it's kind of a shock to us. And um and it's still kind of a shock that it even happened. Uh and that was an amazing, amazing boost to us. It introduced a lot of people to our music. And I think just kind of like the um the banjo what what Bon Jovi did for us with allowing us to open for them at MSG, it's just another example of, you know, two really kind of well intentioned, good hearted bands who understand. Um, paying it forward in the purpose of uh and the purpose and the um and the need to you know give younger bands uh, a hand like that and it's it's really amazing and we really appreciate all of that.
4: Absolutely. Well it's been great talking to you. I have one final question and then we're gonna let you go. But before uh I ask that, let's just remind people we're talking with Harrison. He's the guitarist in tempt. We're we're gonna have all their social media and stuff linked on the show notes on talkingmetal.com and talkingrock.net their last album was "Runaway," and they have some singles out, including the the cover of Def Leppard's "Women." And Harrison, you are a guitar player. What kind of gear do you play out of?
1: Um, I use an Axe Effects um, as my main kind of like you know amp, and uh, and that's where all my effects and stuff come. I use Sur guitars, which are my favorite guitars. I know I know they've kind of gotten popular these days, which is great. Other uh, fantastic guitar, and then yeah, I'm just using a. Marshall cabinet so a pretty uh a pretty standard setup but it it I think it sounds great and it's been super reliable for me so
4: Awesome awesome cool well it's been great chatting with you we're going to have all the social media linked but in case somebody's listening to the podcast version of this and they don't have their computer in front of them can you just run down where the best places to connect with you online are
1: yeah, so um, everything is under Temp Ban, so you can do Facebook.com slash Temp Ban, Instagram Temp Band, and Twitter Temp Ban, and I will say that, you know, we respond to all the messages we get on Facebook and Instagram, so please message us and talk to us, tell us what you think, and sharing and liking all these posts, um, it really does help. We found that out with when we were doing all the covers and the Def Leopard covers, so make sure if you if you like the page and you like what you see just get engaged a little bit like some stuff comments and stuff and uh i think we're building a pretty cool community so definitely come be a part of that
4: awesome and guys the band again is tempt t-e-m-p-t check them out on all social media and uh thank you harrison for talking with us today
1: no problem thank you so much
4: all right man Thanks to all the guests on today's show, Michael Alago, Andy Bolton, Harrison from Tempt. I really appreciate it, and I appreciate you, the listeners, listening. You know, John Astronomy, who is such a big part of this podcast for its first, you know, five years, he's expressed a, an interest to come back into the fold. He and I have been talking, and um, I don't know, kind of curious to how you guys feel about that. I know a lot of the newer listeners don't really know him that much, but if you wanted to shoot me an email and let me know your honest opinions, I'm just curious. Um, I, I know we did that recent episode where we were out at the bar and people seemed to like that. I got some good response back on that. You know, if he does come back in, I'm definitely going to kind of produce him. I don't want him to go off on these stories about a bunch of people that no one knows who, who the heck he's talking about, you know, his band and all this stuff. I'll definitely keep him focused. Um, and I do feel like he and I have a good chemistry, but I'm always curious to what you guys think. Of course, we're going to have plenty more with Emily. She'll be up there at Heavy Montreal, and she's going to go nowhere. That You know, even if John is back in the fold, she will still be a big part of the show moving forward. That's not going to change. All right, and on that note, Oh, and by the way, my email is Mark at TalkingMetal.com. Oh, you know what I forgot? Shit. Fred, you had emailed about Talking Rock, our other podcast. So real quick, Fred. uh, Yes. um, I got rid of my Spreaker page and feed. I was using that for the embeddable players, and it also allowed me to get the podcasts on on iHeart, uh, but iHeart's pretty much dead. No one was listening to to the, no one, well, I shouldn't say no one. Very few people were listening to the podcast through iHeart. And it, uh, sadly, that is where I, it was the second feed for Talking Rock. And so the feed for Talking Rock, Fred, as you emailed me about, is currently gone. I don't know what I'm going to do with Talking Rock. I, I don't, I've been having problems staying getting that podcast going. Joey has been great when he's on it. And I do feel like we do need another podcast where I can place people who just simply aren't anywhere close to being hard rock or heavy metal, since I like all the styles of music, but I'm not sure. So Fred, to answer your question, the talking rock feed is currently gone it may be replaced at some point. I don't know. I got to figure out what I'm going to do with Talking Rock. I need to talk to Joey Haney about that and just kind of assess uh, what to do with that show. You know, it was, was doing a little bit better. It was getting like 200 downloads an episode, which, which isn't terrible, which isn't terrible. Not great, though. But it's something, right? So on that note, let me let me get back to you on, on what's going on with Talking Rock. And I kind of need to figure it out, Fred. All right. But on that note, we're going to end this show. And we're going to hear a little more new music by Tokyo Blade. This is Black Water. Thanks, guys.